How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Third Line Plug is War. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. Joining me, as always, from the tropical metropolis of Calgary, Alberta, my co-host, Tim Jesse. Tim, how's it going, sir? Going pretty good, and uh, it's always fun to do the <laughs> these episodes, the wrestling-themed ones, and uh, we got a Super Bowl to talk about to boot, so I think it's going to be a good episode. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Now, the only thing that we're going to be missing is, you know, a couple of middle-aged women shaking their asses, but other than that... We're going to have a pretty what good episode coming up. fuck out. was that the highlight of my week, though? Well, let's be honest. Did you not see them in those costumes? Come on. Let's be honest. Is J-Lo's even really a... Okay, I shouldn't be too mean because, well, J-Lo's did not leave a lot to the imagination. I know. I mean, I love her for it. <laughs> so, Tim... I mean, it worked. That is that is true. So, Tim, today's episode is Season 3, Episode 17, in chronological order... Episode 71, the Nick Foligno episode. Now, a little backstory about Nick Foligno. He was drafted 28th overall by the Ottawa Senators in 2006. He played five seasons for Ottawa, recording 61 goals, 87 assists for 148 points in 351 games before he was traded to Columbus in 2012 for Mark Mathot. So you know what's funny, Tim? Given I just talked about Nick Foligno and... Given that he won the cover athlete poll, which it's amazing we haven't really had a poll in a while. When I was thinking back about what am I going to talk about Nick Foligno outside of his very first goal when he jumped up in the air, I totally drew a blank on what to really say about him. I don't know. It's where because I, I do remember him as an Ottawa Senator. He was on there in the early 2010 teams, but... I don't know, maybe, is it just me? Like, I can't really think of anything when I think of Nick Foligno. Well, the thing about that I always remember about Nick Foligno, and the hard thing is, is he was on those, re- some of those really mediocre, late aughts, early tens, Senators teams, and he was one of those players that played with a lot of heart, and you could see the flash of brilliance there, but it was another one of those will-he-won't-he type players. Yeah, And uh, I always remember him for being, he played hard, was really good at getting things out of the corners and just remember being very impressed with his play during the 2012 playoffs in that series against the Rangers but it's hard to think of a defining moment of Nick Foligno as an Ottawa Senator just because he was kind of young that year and it it wasn't a great year for the Senator like he wasn't on a lot of those strong Senators teams no it wasn't and the one thing about Nick Foligno is that I almost put him in the category with players like Derek Grant or Josh Hennessy, guys like this, of the, I remember him from the EA sports games, but not as a senator. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm just a minority on that one, Tim, but I just felt like Nick Foligno as a player, you would think given he played five full seasons, he, you know, he had over almost 150 points, you would think I would have a moment or something to think of, but... I don't know. I'm just drawing a blank. I mean, in fairness, if it was Chris Tierney, who was the other number 71, kind of in the same boat. Like, I don't think I could ever think of a defining Chris Tierney moment other than there were some games where he was really solid. I think for a lot of Senders fans, the trades that Foligno and Tierney were involved in are the more defining moments with Mark Mathot coming in and Carlson going out. So next week's cover athlete, Tim. So for Season 3, Episode 18, in chronological order, Episode 72. Now, of course, we've only got one player to wear number 72 for the Ottawa Senators, and he's a current Ottawa Senator, the man known as Hot Sam Baccio, Thomas Shabbat. Oh, that's going to be fun. 
I know that's going to be fun. I can't wait to talk about Thomas Shabbat on next week's episode because, and I'm going to say right now, and I'm not going to put any money on it. I think Tom Shabbat's going to have a fantastic week and you and I are going to talk about it given he's the cover athlete. Because I was thinking about this, like in all the years that we've had a cover athlete, have we actually had a guy as a cover athlete who actually scored a goal in the week that he was the cover athlete, Tim? I don't think so. I haven't been keeping track. And I guess one of the hard things, though, is our cover athletes tend to bias to former senators. It is true. It is true. But, I mean, yeah, I'm just trying to think. Well, I'm trying to think. Who was number 63? Was Ennis? Did Ennis score in the week he was a cover athlete? I don't I don't think he did. I think he did. Did he? Well, well I'll have to go back and have a look at that, Tim, because, honestly, yeah. that would be a very interesting thing to think about, given that, you know, we've had so many cover athletes – and we have yet to have one that has scored in the week. He's a cover athlete. Yeah, because Ennis would have been the cover athlete probably mid-December. So I don't think he'd eat it up quite yet. Because I frankly remember having a discussion about Tyler Ennis being one of those players that you could see the skill set, but he was never really able to put it, able to put it all together, right? Yeah, kind and of like a Ryan Zingle yeah. almost. Oh, one thing I do want to mention before we go on to our weeks is uh, recall two weeks ago when we were talking about the Battle of Alberta and saying that it was probably going to be boring? Yep. I think we have Deep Crow on that one. I know. And honestly, I think when we get to the fourth and final game of the evening, we'll be eating a lot of crow because I never, you know, and I, did watch, I didn't watch the game itself, but I did watch the highlights and I'm just like, holy shit. Like, given that the, the Battle of Ontario opened up Saturday night for Hockey Night in Canada... And let's be it was a bit of a dud. I think that's a pretty fair assumption to make. And then, of yeah. course, the Battle of Alberta comes out and just blows everything out of the water. Well, what's funny is that was the second Al- Alberta team game that week. And both of them were fantastic games. Yeah, so we got a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. Speaking of episodes, Tim, let's go in and talk about last week's episode, our All-Star edition, because... Overall, I'm actually quite happy of the content that we got out of last week's episode. Yeah, and it was good to see that uh, we weren't alone thinking certain things, especially when it came to things like the game ending too late and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm, which I know our Bod McKinnon on Twitter made a mention of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, honestly, it was a super fun episode. Uh, Shaman only got four, about 40 listens, but whatever, it happens. It does, but I mean, it's one of those things where I was kind of expecting that, right? I was I was not expecting a, oh, a lot of people listening to it, given it's the All-Star Game weekend or whatever. But have you noticed, like, the last couple of weeks, our numbers have been really inconsistent because it was like, and I'm going to bring up the stats right here because, honestly, let's have a look on SoundCloud. Lose track. Yeah, because right from, like, our Christmas episode, it was like, or the post Christmas episode was like 63, 52, 46, 54, and 36. Yeah, it's just kind of all over the place. I know, and I mean, but in fairness, our most listened to episode was our interview with Jamie McLennan so at 162, I believe. Well, I think that's probably one of our best pieces of work, other between that and the Ian Mendez interviews. I think of the Ian Mendez interview, if that's the one criticism I have on our interview with Ian is on my end, because I don't think I did a good enough job 
editing that episode together because there was still a lot of ums and uhs and whatever. But I think I was just so excited to be listening to that thing. Like, holy shit, I can't believe we actually got to talk to Ian Mendez from TSN. I think maybe that was why that episode sounds the way it does. But also, I think that going back, I think that kind of adds a little bit of charm to it is that you can tell that we were kind of freaking out too. We're like, oh my God, it's, it's Ian Mendez. This is amazing. Honestly, I thought we had a, I thought we had a good interview there. No, no. Overall, I really liked oh, yeah. the interview. I just thought on my end, I could have edited it better. That's all. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, the Jamie McLennan one. I mean, you could definitely tell that was put a lot more time and effort into not just with the editing side, but also the questions because you know how it always started a question with. So insert name here. If you go back and listen to the Jamie McLennan interview, that's the one thing I didn't do. Because I try to be somewhat professional, and that's not to say I'm not professional with the with the interviews, but I try to be not as conversational and more professional interviewer in that regard. Well, I think the other thing is just getting used, getting back into the the driver's seat and learning what to do. For sure, man. For sure. So let's recap our week because. I know that I was talking with you yesterday, and you made a comment that I thought was pretty interesting. You said, I never thought a half-naked 50-year-old woman would be the highlight of my week. And I said, so far. I mean, that's pretty hard not to talk. Uh, yeah, the super, like the Super Bowl was fantastic. Like, uh, At least from a viewer's perspective, I think it was the best-played game in a very long time. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not someone who's very familiar with football, so I can't speak from a technical aspect, so... I just felt the game was lots of back and forth, pretty entertaining. And the halftime show was fantastic. Like, I think in both form and pomp, both the game and the halftime show were way better than uh, the Snorefest we got last year. Oh, it was totally way better. But the one thing I noticed is that from the game aspect, and, you, and you're absolutely right, it was a back and forth game. I kind of thought it was going to be a pretty tight game to begin with so I was kind of happy on that but one thing I noticed and one thing which I'm gonna just go ahead and say right now if I was the person picking the Super Bowl MVP I would have not picked Patrick Mahomes and I'll explain why Patrick Mahomes did not carry the Kansas City Chiefs in that game yes he did put them in the lead but the guy who should have won it was their running back Damian Williams that's the guy who did most of the work for the Chiefs in that game. Because if you go back, like, he was the one who made some key plays. He's the one who got a couple of touchdowns. And I think because Mahomes got the rushing TD, including two passing TDs, I think that's why he ended up winning it. But overall, I was watching it and thinking, like, okay, I, don't, I wouldn't agree with Patrick Mahomes being the Super Bowl MVP. But you know what? It, it was a pretty good game overall. I would have picked Damian Williams... But that was one of those games where I watched it, and the only thing I was thinking of is, like, all this game needs is one big offensive play to break it wide open. And that's what happened, because I think it was in the fourth quarter when Mahomes, they were on a third and 15, and he had to throw a big bomb downfield in and order to get the first it. down. He nailed it. I was sitting there like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. I can't well, well, believe he nailed that's, it. That's on, they just called him, like, a, he made a, a bomb that got called back for 20 yards, and then he just answers like, 80 yards, bitch. I know. And I was like, you can see a lot of other teams, that would have just broken them right there. Well, you know what? I think going to the San Francisco, talking about San Francisco now, is that 
The one game I think that ended up breaking their back was right before halftime where Garoppolo found George Kittle downfield and George and George Kittle got called for pass interference. That was a big penalty that got called against San Francisco. And I said, I wonder how that game would have gone if that wasn't called. Because that yeah. could have put them in scoring position. Because even though they were up 20 to 10 or 20 to 13 or whatever they were up by, I just said, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't think they're going to hold on to it. I just... I think Kansas City's going to come back because the Chiefs, I think six or seven times this season, including the playoffs, they've come back. Like they came back against game, the playoffs. Yeah, they, they came back against the Texans. They came back. I think the Titans. They came back from. So there's and there were a number of other games this season they came back from. So I was like, oh, so that's good. And yeah, it was a pretty entertaining game. It was better than, but I mean, fuck, pick any fucking Super Bowl would have been better than last year's. Christ, that was boring. But yeah. No, I wasn't Yo, really happy with I it. I also made bomb-ass meatloaf for Super Bowl Super Bowl dinner. Okay, so you need to talk a little bit about this, because this is the first time I'm hearing about this. Now, normally with Super Bowl parties, Tim, people usually make, you know, the traditional finger foods, you know, sliders, nachos, chips and dip. Not Tim Jensen, apparently. He's making a meatloaf. Well, what happened was, like, We'd been looking at something that had been just easy to throw together and make multiple days worth of food. So uh, we just got some a meatloaf, some bre- some bread. I turned into breadcrumbs, uh, Italian seasonings so like oregano, basil, and put a spaghetti, basically a spaghetti sauce on top of it, and put it in the oven for an hour. And then I realized as I was putting the oven, I could have just made sloppy joes. You could have made sloppy joes, but the thing with sloppy joes is that. You can make the meat sauce, just don't put it underneath the buns, because you do not want those buns getting soggy as shit, because once they're soggy, it's over. You don't want to eat that shit. Yeah, I know what I usually do is sloppy joes, because you're 100% right, is I serve them as if they're pulled pork, and I toast up the bun and then just serve the meat sauce on it. Okay, that actually sounds pretty good, I'm not going to lie, Tim. Yeah, so I just treat it like any other sandwich. So yeah, so uh, we made bomb-ass meatloaf, and then I had, uh, it was funny, because as I was putting it in, it's like, because uh, we're having uh, just baked root vegetables with it, so we had a sweet potato, uh, regular potato carrots, and uh, some summer, sorry, some winter squash, mm-hmm. and I was like, fuck, I could have just made fries. It was just like this realization, it's like, I could have, I this I basically took a Super Bowl meal and made it into adult-friendly food. <laughs> but, however, going back to what you're saying, like, if you're making a Super Bowl meal, but also meals for the next couple of days, French fries is not the way to go. French fries, if you're doing, like, just that day, French fries is perfect. But given that you have sweet potatoes, potatoes, vegetables, all that good stuff, you can keep that and it'll hold for days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we still have some of it. We had some leftovers tonight and we're having the rest tomorrow. It's pretty good, man. Even though I'm not a big meatloaf guy, that does sound pretty good. Yeah, it's funny because I know uh, we've been trying out this new FODMAPs diet just because Chelsea's, uh, we're not sure what's been causing some discomfort, so food is the next one. And at first I thought it was going to be brutal, like, because it's no garlic, no onion, no lactose, no gluten. So it's just like a very bare bones diet, but we've been, we've been making our way through. Yeah, and that's the thing with 
these kind of diets with allergies, right? Is that you need to find meals that you can eat, but also it's a lot of trial and error, I find. Because once you start cutting everything out, it's, okay, these I can't eat. What about everything else? Like what kind of stuff that's kind of in a gray area, right? You'd have, say, what about this, but it has this on it. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about the FODMAPS one is it's a diagnostic diet. So you go, what you do is you cut hard, and then you start reintroducing foods to figure out what's causing the unhappiness in the stomach. So uh, like the bare bones, bare bones, one you only do for like a month or so just to get to baseline. Mm-hmm. And then you start adding stuff back in like one group at a time. So uh, we'll see what happens. But it's funny because it's also just I didn't realize how easy some sort of things actually were. Like we've been doing a lot more roasts. I didn't realize how piss easy at making a like a roast actually is. Yeah, it's one of those things because I think when you think of a roast, it's you you think of all the time and preparation you need to put into it. But honestly, they're really not that hard to make, and it doesn't. It, it takes a couple of hours, I would give or take, to do a roast right. But I mean, overall, they're really not that hard to do. No, I think the hardest part's actually carving the damn thing. Are, are you saying that you're not like? Uh, Haggis the horrible that you just don't eat it with your hands. Just take a big bite out of it. <laughs> no, like I remember uh, two weeks ago now, we we made a... Actually, here's something that I, I'm going to bring up. Never fucking cook with maple syrup. That's bullshit. Yeah, it's because of all the sugar that's in it. The sugar... Yeah, if you, if, 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 yeah, exactly. If you put it to a higher enough temperature for enough time, that shit burns. Yeah. And high enough temperature, we were cooking a chicken at 350. Yeah, so I'm not listening to white women recipes anymore. Fuck that. But, uh, yeah, carving a bird's a pain in the ass because, like, you're cutting through... You have to cut through joints. Yeah, that that's true. That is true. It is a pain in the ass. One thing I would recommend, like, if you're going to be cooking with sugar, use sugar more as a glaze more than anything else. Like, don't bake that shit. Like, make what you're going to be making and then use whatever syrupy or sugary uh, uh, ingredient... Use that more as a glaze on it after it's done and let it sit. Yeah, either that or just say, fuck it. Yeah, because we're looking at this recipe and it was like, oh yeah, cover it in maple syrup and throw the fucker in the oven. Like, I'm like, okay. And I wasn't smart enough to put a bit of parchment underneath it. Yeah, that pan's gone. Well, I mean, it's not as funny as the time you made that menstruoni that went bad, but... Actually, uh, two weeks, yeah, two weeks ago, I thought I fucked up and made Rainbow Soup Volume Three because uh, we've used the leftover chicken carcass to make a soup, and I forgot to put it back in the fridge. Luckily, it was fine in the morning, so we just heated it up, let it cool down, put it back in the fridge, and like, well, I mean, heated up, we got it to a boil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's me. Solid. One final comment I want to make about the Super Bowl. And I know people on Twitter were talking about the halftime show between Shakira and Jennifer Lopez. And while I will go on record to say it was much better than the one previous, as everything was in that fucking game. But the one thing I do have to comment, a lot of people on Twitter were upset by the overly sexualized Super Bowl halftime show. And it's funny, it's always these middle-aged soccer moms again bought heard about shit like this you know given the super Bowl's the only football game every year they watch and i was thinking about that today and i was like you know what 
Isn't that funny? Eh? Like these, and it's always the butthurt soccer moms that bitch about shit like this, and yet they see nothing wrong, and they actually get a little bit thirsty over shirtless Adam Levine at last year's Super Bowl halftime show. Oh my goodness, where was everybody complaining about that? They're complaining it was a shit concert. Exactly. But I mean, honestly, as a guy, well, I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, I mean, yeah, they looked fantastic, but... Here's the thing, ladies. I'm 27 years old. I'm white. I'm tall. I don't look like Jimmy Garoppolo. Do I? Do you see me complaining about this? No, not really. Exactly. I think it's just what happens when you give people infinite power to complain to infinite amount of people. I know. But overall, it was a good game, and I was glad to see Kansas City win the Super Bowl, so... Yeah. Hey, as long as it wasn't the Niners, I'm happy. Whoa. I know. I saw your post. I saw that you bandwagoned them. Yeah, but I was hoping for like a year's worth of my boy Mikey's banter. It would have been sick. I don't know who that fellow is, but I'm very disappointed that you bandwagoned them. Uh, he's one of my California buddies. Ah. So, Tim... You know, I know that we've been talking for the past 20 minutes or so, and it's been a really good time, but I do want to just take a minute and shift gears here to something a little more serious. So, this past Wednesday was the Bell Let's Talk Day. Now, Bell Let's Talk Day, for those who don't know, it's a day started by the communications company Bell to get people to open up about mental health issues on social media and getting the conversation going about that. Over the last couple of years, it's been a very successful campaign, and much like with Michael Landsberg's Sick Not Weak campaign, it's been something that has been really great to see people living with mental health issues coming out and talking about it. And there were a number of people online that talked about their struggles with mental health, including Brian Fiver Six. He had opened up about his anxiety, and even a former guest of ours, Kelly Gibbs Barton, talked about her issues as well. For those, for those who may have seen it on Twitter... I also posted about the Bell Let's Talk Day because for most of my adult life, I've also dealt with mental health issues, it, most notably depression. Now, a lot, of this, a lot of this does stem from the death of my brother back in 2014. And I have to say, like, there hasn't been anything in my life that affected me that bad. And for those that don't know, and I know, Tim, I've talked with you maybe I think maybe one time ever about it in the years that we've ever talked is that uh, my brother was unfortunately stabbed to death in the Philippines about six years ago and given that today would have been his 36th birthday I figured it would be a good time to open up about it with you guys because this is something that I feel is really important and I also feel that it's also great for me to be open with you guys about it and mm -hmm. My brother's death, as I said, I have never had anything that hit, hurt me and hit me so hard as it. And this is going to be very rambly because I'm just trying to find words to the thoughts I have. And I know when my brother died, like I went into a deep depression for over a year. I had dealt with anxiety. I dealt with night terrors. And over the next couple of years, I had dealt with a few bouts of depression. And I will say 2019 overall was a pretty tough year, but it was also a really good year. And of course, as you and I were talking about our interviews with Ian Mendez, Jamie McLennan, those were the real highlights for me, as well as hitting 100 episodes with the podcast, 
the National Podcast Network bring us on. And last April was the five-year anniversary of my brother's death. And so I wrote a whole Facebook post regarding his death and my mental health issues I dealt with at the time and how far I've come about it. And I think that the reception I got was very, very positive, very warm. And I felt like I got a lot of shit off my chest about it. And it was something that I've wanted to talk about for years, but I was just never comfortable enough to talk about because as you know, Tim, something that I'm not, I'm not somebody who likes to rock the boat. I'm not somebody who likes to just complain and talk about stuff that's bugging me because that's not who I am. That's not how my personality has ever been. And so it's been one of those things where I just had to get to a point where I was comfortable talking about it. And so back in April, probably a couple of days after I wrote that article, I had spoken to a coworker of mine, Lily, about said post. I told her, like, I just told you, I felt like I got like 50 pounds off my chest. I felt like the wounds from my brother's death had had healed. I felt like I had healed. I kind of, it kind of came full circle, that I was finally open about enough to talk about it. And unfortunately, that would be the last conversation I had with her, given that a few days later, she would die of a heart attack. And at the time, I, I just, I didn't know how to feel about it. I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to deal with that because honestly, I was just trying to comfort people that I worked with people I knew around that time because I saw how much that hurt them. And so for probably two months afterwards, like I think it came more and more apparent how much it really bugged me. And I know that there would be nights where I would come home from work. I would go downstairs. I've taken the dogs out, just lay on my bed, turn the lights off and just lay there for hours on end. I just didn't, didn't watch TV. I didn't, you know, play video games. I didn't do anything. I just sat there until I fell asleep. And that's when I realized, like, I'd sunk back into a bad bout with depression. And in June, I this is when I finally felt comfortable enough to do talk with one of my coworkers about my mental state and about what, what I was going through. And so one day I just went up to my coworker and I was talking to her and I said, you know, I wasn't feeling great. And she had asked me if I was feeling, you know, physically, if I was feeling okay. And I says, no, like like mentally I was not well and I literally her eyes got so huge because she had always seen me as a lucky happy-go-lucky kind of guy she didn't expect that out of me so that really oh man uh, this really took her by such a surprise because she never thought that she never thought like I was dealing with that and I said you know what it's always those kind of people that you always need to worry about, right? I mean, it, you could look at, you know, the Chris Farley's and the John, not John Candy's, but the, the Robin Williams, the Robin yeah. Williams, people like that. It's always those kind of people who always seem happy go lucky and always were upbeat with people. And so those are the kind of people you kind of had to worry about. And throughout that summer, heading into the summer, like I dealt with it off and on. And I mean, I can think of days like the final day of school where even though we were, we were super busy and we're doing everything like I was just not in a good mind space. And then we went out for one of my coworkers birthdays and it was just one of those nights where I just, I didn't want to go out. I was just not in a great headspace. Didn't want to go out. I just wanted to be alone. And I decided to go out for her because I figured, you know what, regardless of how I'm feeling, this is not about me. This is about somebody else. It's their birthday and I'll go and support them. And I did. 
I went out and, you know, didn't say much. I think she even noticed something was wrong because I wasn't really saying anything. And so that was one of those things where I think one or two people like really started to notice stuff like that. Like if I, if I seem a little off, people would kind of say like, Oh, okay. Like something's not right. Maybe he's tired or whatever, but only a handful of people know that I'm dealing with depression or dealing with whatever. So that was something that became more and more apparent. And, and I know this is something that even with the podcast we've talked about is that, as you remember, Tim, like the very first episode of this year, we had dedicated it to Quinn. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say that at the time we didn't mention it. And this is something that we always knew is that we found out a day or two after I found out that he passed away that he had taken his own life. And that's how he ended up passing away. And... Was that ever officially confirmed, or...? I think that was confirmed, yes, that he took his oh, own okay. life. And it was just one of those things where... And I talked about, like, I was not... hadn't wasn't super close with the guy, you know, even when I was in school, out of school. But his death really just oddly affected me, really, in a hard way. And I remember even messaging you about that. And you were in Ottawa, and you and I were talking about it. And I just sat on the couch, and... I was just in tears. I just couldn't fucking believe what the hell happened. And the fact that, you know, and I, I knew about my own mental state and the fact that Quinn had gone through the same thing. And he got to a point where he took his own life and where I've never gotten to that point. Right. And so, you know, it's just one of those things where like, I was just sitting there. I couldn't, I was just beside myself. And that's when I finally decided, I said, you know what? I got to, be honest with Tim too about this. Like I can't just sit here and not tell him. And that's when I finally told you about it. And I think <clears> even you and I had a good conversation because honestly, you know, and I looked at my life and I mean, yeah, it's not perfect. You know, I'm still living at home. I work at, you know, I have a full-time job. I have really good friends and, but you know, people my age, you know, they have their own home. They have a career, they have everything. And I don't have those kind of things. And that's when those kind of moments, I have to try and think about the positive things I have. Like I do a podcast where I get to talk with you every week about the sins. I do have a job, which I do like the people I work with. And overall, like I, I don't have that bad of a life, to be honest with you. Like, it's just one of those things where, you know, you get in that kind of mindset every now and then where it's, it's tough. And it's, well, tough. it's so easy to get caught in a spiral too, right? It's true. And even you and I were talking about that. And I said, you know what? I just try and think of all the positive things in my life that, you know, when I, when I get to that state, I just try and think all the good things I have. Like I look back, even with this podcast thing, I'm thinking, huh, you know, you know, it kind of sucks that we don't get a lot of people commenting on us, but I think back at the work that we've put into it. I said, you know what? Because of this podcast, we've talked to Jamie McLennan. We talked to Ian Mendez. We've talked to Alex Marchant. We've got into interact with people on Twitter about the hockey team and people are out there that like our podcast and like what we say and want to communicate with us every now and then. And that's, yeah, and that's really rewarding. Yeah. And it's something that without putting the work in and uh, doing all that, it wouldn't ever happen. And you could probably, it's pretty easy to imagine a world where you don't do something like that. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I, 
And another thing that I'm sure you even said the same thing about this podcast is that you and I became friends again. Because yeah, you and I much. you and I hadn't really talked in a couple of years post high school because you went off to university and you and Chelsea moved out to Ontario and then you moved to Alberta and you guys have your own careers, you have your own lives and I was doing my own thing and then the podcast comes along and you and I get to reconnect as adults. Well, it's kind of funny. It's just one of those things where it's 5% inspiration, 95% effort, and uh, we stuck with it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's... Is there anything else you want to expound on there? Or? Um, no, not really. I just... You know, I just feel like we should probably close it out here because, you know, I, I feel that I'm pretty comfortable at the moment talking about my mental health and talking about stuff with people. I know that even, like I said, with the Bell Let's Talk Day, that... I had the whole thread about it. I even posted on my Instagram stories and people know about it now. So for me, it's like people know what I'm like and they know that there is no disingenuousness with me. You know that if I tell you something, it's pretty much, that's the way I feel. I don't bullshit about that. And the last thing I can close out with this. And one thing I didn't mention about last year is that, probably a couple of weeks after we talked with Ian Mendez, I had suffered a panic attack in the middle of the night, probably two thirty, three o'clock in the morning. I just woke up in a fucking sweat. My heart rate was racing and I'm standing in my room going like, Holy fuck. Like, I think I'm fucking going to die right here in here. Yeah. I just couldn't fucking believe that. Like, I was just like, what the fuck? Like, what is wrong with me? And I couldn't fall back to sleep. I just like, I was I was freaked the fuck out about it. Yeah, and it's... I think the horrifying thing is when there's, like... It just comes out of nowhere, right? Yeah, and even with my brother's death, like, I'd never suffered a panic attack. I didn't suffer any of that. I dealt with anxiety because... And with night terrors as well, because... Like, it fucked me up so bad. Like, it fucked... It really fucked me up, but I never talked to a therapist because... You gotta realize, I was a kid. I was only... 22 when my brother died like i was not ready to talk to a therapist i was not mentally ready for that <clears throat> and that's why for five years i'd never talked about it i didn't tell anybody about it and that's why at 27 years old i feel finally open enough that i can actually talk about it finally well it's, it's kind of an interesting point you bring up there that you felt like not really old enough to talk to a health professional there like I know there's definitely that kind of meme about uh, young guys thinking they're invincible, but honestly, I know a lot of guys, myself included, were the same way. Like, uh, it took me until a year ago to get my shit together to kind of stop being a self being as self destructive as I tend to be. So, or at least talk to a therapist about it. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like we should just close it out with that because. You know, like I said, like I feel comfortable enough to talk about it. And I feel like I got a lot of stuff off my chest with you guys. And at the moment, I'm doing okay. I think last week when I talked about the Bell Let's Talk stuff, I think I kind of dealt with depression on Wednesday when I dealt with it because I was just like, that's a lot of handle right there. Like I just, again, opened up myself to let them in, be vulnerable about it. And I, at the moment, I'm doing okay, but... And that's one of the things about even the tail end of last year and coming into this year is that 
mentally I've been doing okay. Like I haven't really dealt with depression. I haven't dealt with any kind of mental health issue. And as I said in my thread, if anybody out there is dealing with it, it's okay to talk to people. And on my Twitter at Great Way Gipster, on, on Twitter and all my Instagram and all my social media, my DMs and my PMs are always open if you guys want to talk. So, Tim, I guess with that being said, we're going to take a really quick break here, and we'll be back to talk about top of the hour and the four games we're going to talk about tonight. So, with that being said, guys, we'll be coming right back. Hey, this is Jamie McLennan from TSN, and you're listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. Okay, guys, we are back on the Third Line Plug Sensecast. Now, with everything being said and how heavy our previous segment was, I feel the best way to lighten up this show is by segueing into this little segment I like to call Top of the Hour. Now, I really like the fact that uh, McKinnon did bring that up on Twitter about us leaving a bit of a break in there for the Peace Hour. Because honestly, it gives me also an excuse to catch my breath too when I'm talking. I mean, breathing's good, Tay. Mm-hmm. Very much so. You know what's also good, Tim, is that we got another segment of Ovi Watch because we're going to start off with Washington Capitals forward. Alexander Vechkin has moved into eighth overall in the all-time goals list with his 695th goal versus the Ottawa Senators, which we'll talk about in the third game of this evening, passing Mark Messier. Ovechkin is now 14 goals away from moving into seventh all-time on the goal-scoring list. You know, I was about to say we are going to call this Ovi Watch after a bit because this is the second or third week we've been talking about it. And it's, and I think we said it last year, and I think a lot of people have been saying it's like a few years ago, it was like, oh, that's a stretch. And then you're in the middle of it happening. You're like, when did this become real? I know. And it's one of those marks where I think for a lot of players, I think when they get to the end of their careers, that's when you really look back on how great of a career it is. But also when they get, they, a lot of players seem to get to a point where certain attitudes are relaxed towards them, right? And I mean, and I'm sure if Sidney Crosby gets into like 37, 38, 39 years old, and he's still playing, I think attitudes would get more relaxed on him. In the same way that Alexander Ovechkin is 35 and attitudes towards him has really relaxed over the last couple of years. Because if you remember, but 10, 12 years ago, like, there was so much, you know, publicity and a little bit of criticism towards Ovechkin for his over-the-top goal celebrations and what he would do on the ice. But I think as time has gone on with Ovechkin, a lot of that has turned into admiration, especially when you see that he is now, what, 200-something goals away from catching Gretzky? Like, that's unreal. Nobody thought in our lifetime we would ever see that. Yeah, and I think that's what's so incredible about it is you have this guy that he was just an incredible, incredible, incredible goal scorer, and we got to live through it. And I'm sure some of the initial resistance was just uh, harping on the new guy, but I don't think he ever really realized how incredible something you watched is until after the fact. Yep. Yeah, especially with our next guy that we've got to talk about, San Jose Sharks defenseman Eric Carlson. God, I'll tell you, I'll never, ever get used to saying that. Became the 11th defenseman in NHL history to reach 600 points in 730 or fewer regular season games. Carlson, who joined the Sharks in September 2018, 
recorded five goals, 32 assists for 37 points in 49 games when he reached the mark. I'm just going to say right now, I, as I said, I will never get used to saying San Jose Sharks defenseman, Eric Carlson. Doesn't sound, doesn't sound right, man. No, it'll get easier with time and when we get to use their first overall. So, <laughs> Are you saying to him, possibly on Alexei Lafonniere? The impossibility. I do love the fact that somebody on Twitter, when Carlson reached that mark, she just put up on Twitter says, most of those points happened with the Senators. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Maybe, you know, because I mean, and it's sad, right? When you look at San Jose, the team on paper should be doing way better than they should right now. There's no two ways about that. But I think because time has officially caught up with the Sharks, and I think people are starting to realize, like, kind of the injuries and the loss of players are starting to really affect the Sharks. Like, Thomas Hurdle just got seriously injured last week. Think about, that's a big loss for the Sharks because he's a big piece of their the Sharks' secondary scoring right there. Well, I think the other thing is you're missing the big old elephant in the room. Their goaltending is absolute dog shit. Yeah, but you know what? At what point does that just go without saying, though? I mean, yeah, but neither of your guys are near... Like, your starter is sub 8.89. In 33 games played, that's going to condemn you to the cellar no matter what. Because you very rarely win games where you're sub 900. And that's your average goaltending. You're wrong. I know. It's hard to believe. And, I mean, you could look at the Ottawa Senators' goaltending situation right now. Is Did you ever think what we would see in our lifetime where the, Shar- the Sens would have a better goaltending stuff than the Sharks right now? You know what? Yeah, probably. The Sens have been funny because they've always had like a strong goaltending system, but it's been like the streakiest shit. That's true. I think, yeah, well, you had, you know, Patrick Willeem and even at times Emery. I think Anderson's kind of maybe kind of the exception to that because he's been really solid, but I don't think overall he's been as streaky other than the last couple of years of his career here in, this, in Ottawa. Well, Good year, bad year, Anderson. Yeah, that's true. But you know what? I think bad, good year, bad year also, you can talk that about the team as well. Because you look at the team around them too, and I think because you could look at the players, you could look at the coaching situation, because from 2010 until now, how many fucking coaches have we gone through? We went through Cluson, uh, we went through McLean, we went through Cameron, we went through Boucher. Well, Crawford to a certain extent, and now we're on our sixth head coach in a decade. Forgot that we started the decade with Corey Clouston. I know it's hard to believe, eh? Yeah, you might as well just make the merry-go-round song while you're talking about the coaches. It's true. Let's go on and talk about our next story. TSN's Darren Dreger reported that the NHL is investigating the Arizona Coyotes for holding physical testing for draft-eligible CHL players prior to the combine. No further update was given regarding said situation. You know, Tim, in all my years I've been a hockey fan, and I've, I've heard about teams tampering, but it's more or less with NHLers. It's never with the juniors. And I think this is kind of fascinating because this is almost kind of shit you would expect from, say, the New England Patriots 
more than an NHL team when it comes to them trying to get the upper edge on a team. Yeah, and what's kind of funny about that too is that I wonder how much of an edge they'll actually get from like a secret combine. Because if you think about it, if you're doing this shit covertly, you can't have that many people in on it. You can't get the upper end guys. So like a, my best guess of where it could possibly have a vector of actually improving their success would be in the mid-round. Maybe, but when I first heard this story and I was trying to think, I'm like, you know, I haven't really heard anything about this happened before. And that made me think. I often wonder how many of these teams have actually done it before in the past, but have just never gotten caught. You know? We'll probably never know. And it's funny that you're talking about other sports because this kind of sounds like the scandal that's going on in baseball right now with sign stealing. Because you know damn well every team is trying to steal the other team's signs. It's just that the Astros and the Sox were good at it and got caught. Yeah, much like you look at the New England Patriots with, you know, all their controversies they had over the last several years with, you know, Deflate Gate, Spy Gate, and then even with this season when they were trying to, as you were saying, trying to steal signs from the other team. But come on, New England. You were doing it against Cincinnati. They finished last. They got the first pick. <laughs> Couldn't you have gone after, like, a good team? Like, I don't know, say the Kansas City Chiefs or the San Francisco 49ers who played in the fucking Super Bowl last night? Yeah, no kidding. Tim, let's go on and talk about our next story. The Vegas Golden Knights are in talks to purchase an existing AHL team and move them to Vegas to become their new AHL affiliate. The team said they are in talks with multiple AHL owners, but nothing has been pre presented to the league and isn't expected to be completed in time for next season. So, Tim, I know that you're very disappointed to hear about this because I know for sure that you've always wanted to go down to Vegas to watch the Vegas Golden Gulls. I hate you so much right now. <laughs> Come on, Tim. That's funny. You know that you love that team. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... I get the idea. I wonder if Vegas has enough year-round residents for an NHL team and an AHL team. I don't know. And honestly, I don't think this makes any... I, logistically and travel-wise, this makes sense for the Vegas Gold Knights to do this. But I also think, as you were saying, do they have enough, in, do they have enough interest in having two? Because, you know, they've put minor league teams in Vegas in the past and they've never worked out. So I would think maybe you could put them in a, maybe in another city, like say a Reno, if you want to, if you want to stay in Nevada, so you could put it in Reno. If you want to go to New Mexico, you could put one in Albuquerque. Hell, maybe you can call them the Albuquerque Isotopes. That would be fucking perfect, actually, now that I think about it. But they already got a minor league baseball team named that, so. Yeah. And the baseball one fits more, doesn't it? It does fit more. And it's also fitting that they also have Simpson statues outside the ballpark. It's actually really cool. Yeah. But yeah, hell, if you want to keep it in Nevada, I guess put her in, put her in Reno. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know that, well, actually that's not true. With Seattle's AHL affiliate, they're going to be putting it in Palm Springs. Which, all right, I mean, that's kind of an odd city to put it in. But I'm amazed that they're not putting it in, say, Kent. Because the Kent is the home of the Seattle Thunderbirds too, right? But you could put him in that. You could put it in Portland, Oregon. 
Um, one city that was always rumored for the last decade or so to get an AHL team before we got the junior team was Victoria. Because before Victoria got the Royals, they were in talks to get the... What the fuck were we in talks with? I think the... I want to say Manitoba Moose. I think we were in talks with them to get them for the Winnipeg Jets. That makes sense. Well, either that or... Uh, where does Vancouver's farm team play? Utica. Utica. <laughs> It's true. Actually, you know what? I'm amazed that Vancouver has never, ever put their team in Victoria. Because you think about it, right? It's only a couple hours away. Yeah. Honestly. And, like, you could probably do AHL hockey in Victoria. Exactly, because there's, there's so many NHL like, fans here. Binghamton could support one. Yeah. I mean, Victoria would work, right? And also, it would give me an excuse to go watch the Belleville Senators and watch the B-Sens play. Yeah, like, yeah, give it a chance, Vancouver. Yeah. It'll never happen. The WHL will never allow it. How often are WHL teams and AHL teams in the same city? I don't know. That would be a very interesting thing to look up, Tim. While we're doing that, let's go on and talk about some signings. Now, given that we're talking about the Battle of Alberta at the beginning of this episode, we're going to start off with the Edmonton Oilers have re-signed forward Zach Cassian to a four-year, $12.8 million contract with an AAV 3.2. Cassian has recorded 13 goals, 15 assists, or 28 points in 45 games for Edmonton at the time of the signing. So basically, with this signing, we're going to get four more years of Cassian versus Tuchuk. This is not a good signing, though. Oh, no. You know what? The only the big problem I have with the signing is I understand Edmonton re-signing him. Why are you giving him $3 million per year? This is a bottom, you know, this is what, a third to fourth line player? Are you trying to tell? Well, he's definitely not. This is the Colin Greening contract. Let's be real. Are you saying, and I'm going to go on record and say, Tim, are you saying this is the perfect third-line plug contract? Pretty much. Actually, I was going to say, uh, speaking of third-line plugs, um, and given we were talking about Kelly in our previous segment, um, did you realize that she posted a new article last week? No, I didn't. No, because, well, here's the funny thing. Now, and I got a chance to have a look at it, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. She DM'd us on Twitter. To say, to let us know it was up, but also to let us know that there's a very secret third line plug Easter egg in there. And I fe- and there's two of them, apparently. And I saw so how. Easter eggs? There's an Easter egg, apparently. So I read the article. The one I could only find was that she called Anthony Duclair the Duke, which is what we, we've called him that. And I'm, I was looking through it. And I read it through like two or three times. I'm like, okay, I'm not sure where this other one is. And she finally screenshotted it and she pointed, she goes, it's right there. And she's talking about, you know, this, and how did she put it? It was like, um, you know, your bottom players, your third-line plugs. And I was like, solid. That's really cool. Oh, I was half expecting a nutsack reference. Mm. No, I don't think Kelly would have got... Maybe Kelly would do it on the next one, though. Yeah, well, here's the hope. Yeah. But no, uh, finishing up with the signing... I understand why the Oilers re-signed him because he's a perfect third to fourth line player. 
he's not a guy, he's not going to put up crazy-ass numbers, but if you're expecting him to score 10 to 15 goals a season and throw the body around and be physical, he's perfect for that. And he's got a little bit of speed to him. A lot of people don't see the real recognize that about him, which he has that in spades. But also, like as we said, why are we get why are they giving three million dollars per year? Yeah, it's too much. It it, it is the calling greeting contract. It is. Pittsburgh Penguins have re-signed defenseman Marcus Peterson or Patterson, depending on how you want to pronounce that, to a five-year, twenty-point-one million-dollar contract with an AAV four-point-zero-two. Pedersen has recorded one goal, 14 assists, and 15 points in 50 games for Pittsburgh at the time of the signing. So can I just go ahead and say this, Tim? Who, who, who is Marcus Pedersen, and why are they giving him $4 million per year? I think this is a, gam- it's a gamble contract because he's a guy that they picked up uh, from Anaheim, and... Uh, He's a young guy. Uh, this is his age twenty three season, and he's been able to place play second pair of minutes and uh, not be complete ass at it. But it's weird. Like when I first saw this signing, my uh, just that was my reaction was more of a who 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 is Marcus Pedersen? And my first reaction was like, oh, this has to be like Elias Pedersen's brother. No relation. In the like, same uh, in the same way that Eric and is, William is not related either. Yeah. All I can say is, uh, it's uh, he plays pretty decent second pairing minutes, and I wonder how much of it is just uh, when you're on a team with uh, Crosby and Malkin, everything looks better. Well, but, um, I, I don't know about that because you know you could look at exhibits like Jack Johnson or Chris Letang. Chris, sorry, Jack Johnson is a special is a special case, and yeah, we don't talk about Jack Johnson. But uh, Chris Letang, good player. But also, he has a, had a whole, pretty much a whole career with the Crosby factor. Yep. Not to detract, but it, well, I guess to attenuate. Exactly. So, Tim, we're going to close up top of the yard by doing how we always do, by talking about the Ottawa Senators. The Ottawa Senators have hired Peter Loyal as Senior Vice President of Communications and Community Relations. Loyal spent 16 seasons as Senior Vice President of Communication Broadcasting with the Miami Marlins, as well as spending seven seasons working for the Montreal Expos, whom he joined following his stint working for the Ottawa Lynx AAA baseball team in 1995. So one thing about this hiring, talking about the guy himself, and when I was first reading about this, my first reaction, as we're talking about Jim Little, who got hired with the team, it's more of a, who is this guy? Why are we hiring him? My first reaction was fan interaction in the Miami Marlins. But here's the thing. Here's, but listen, hear this one out. Look at the two teams he worked for previously. He worked for the Miami Marlins and the Montreal Expos. Can you think of two teams in sports that has fucking pissed off a fan base so badly one of them ended up leaving? And you know what's also funny? They were both owned by the same guy, Jeffrey Loria, who fucking hated Montreal, and that's why the Expos were gone. Huh. Yeah, so honestly, all I'm kidding from this is that the Ottawa Senators, or, or maybe it's Perry Batman, we don't know, maybe they hired him because of his experience dealing with an owner the fan base hates. It's like a perfect signing almost. 
Yeah, this guy has, like, almost two decades of dealing with a maniac. Yeah, this guy's great for the job. I don't know, he's perfectly suited for it. Yeah. Maybe it will be all quiet on the Melnick front going forward. Well, it's already been pretty quiet so far this season. Yeah, true enough, true enough. Yeah. Well, Tim, I guess that wraps up top of the hour for this week, which can mean only one thing. It's time to go on to the games. Now, we've got four games to talk about in the war zone. We've got the Devils versus the Senators, Sens versus the Buffalo Sabres, Caps versus the Sens, and the Battle of Ontario, round two, Sens versus Leafs. But before we do that, let's hit the music. Retarded, but you know what's funny and why well, shouldn't be retarded? You it costs two and a half million dollars to build. You know what, people? This is why we should just record our conversations pre before we actually hit record to talk about the games and everything we talk about because these are the kind of conversations we got out of. Because we were just talking about the Peter Loyal or how do you pronounce his last name about that hiring, and I brought up the Miami Marlins statue at center field. So Tim had a good chuckle about that one fuck is this thing i know but you know what kind of but you, you know what tim those kind of words can't be said about this game devils versus senators this is a four to three new jersey shootout victory devils was recorded by damon severson kevin rooney kyle palmary and jack hughes in the shootout Senators goals was scored by tyler ennis Vladislav Domestikov and Chris Tierney. Shots were 53-38 for New Jersey. Damon Severson scores to make it 1-0 Devils after his shot goes off the post and is knocked into his own goal by Marcus Hogberg. Tyler Ennis ties the game at 1 on a tic-tac-toe play by Batherson and Chuck. Kevin Rooney scores to make it a 2-1 Devils game on a wraparound. Domestikov ties it for Ottawa at 2-2. Chris Tierney scores on a beauty backhand to make it 4-3 centers. Kyle Palmieri scores to tie it at 3 and Jack Hughes wins it in the shootout. So, as always, when recording Third Line Plug on the nights these games happen, I end up condensed watching it. And it's kind of a shame that it did, because according to Ian Mendez on Twitter, this was actually one of the better games of the season. So we got a couple of notes to talk about. Of course, we got to talk about the big man himself, because, wow, this was easily the best performance of his career. Marcus Hogberg, 50 saves, a .943 save percentage. 
and the team finds a way to lose it for him. You know, this reminds me of last season with Anders Nilsson. Because how many times last season did he absolutely stand on his head and we ended up still losing? Many. Many, many, many. I know, and Hog, you know, Hog's been one of those guys that, and I think the sense calls put it the best, that coming into this season, he was one of those guys where you were just like, I don't know about him. I think he's pretty much lost at this point because he was in the ECHL, and then he got bumped into the, AC, uh, the AHL last season. And now that he's come to the NHL, I, I have to wonder like, what, how or what the hell has happened that he's really found his game in the NHL. Goalies are voodoo, man. But I guess the other thing is Hogberg is still young. True. I mean, well, 25 is still considered somewhat old for a goalie. I thought goalies didn't even really come into their own until 27. And goalies play quite late as a result of that. That's true, but, you know, not everybody's like Thomas Vukun or Pekka Rene or Marty Turco where they were Or Tom, Tim Thomas. Or Tim Thomas, who were late. Or Craig Anderson, who was a late bloomer in the NHL. Yeah, and I feel like goal. I think goalies are more likely to be late bloomers, though. True, unless unless you're like, you know, Patrick Waugh or Martin Brodeur, who the talent is so evident right away that they can bring up to the lineup. That's true, that's true. Actually, even you could even argue that uh, someone who's been around the league a long time, like uh, Robin Lehner, was also a bit of a late bloomer, although uh, part of that was getting his head on straight, yep, and even, as he will admit. And even uh, Ben Bishop to a lesser extent too, right? Because you saw the talent, but he was just never able to make that sustain in the NHL. Yeah. So I got a couple of more. So I got a couple of notes to talk about this. Connor Brown, one assist and five shots. One of the things I've really liked about Connor Brown, and I've talked about this on the first half recap, is that low key, he looked like he was one of our better players in this game with what I saw in the condensed version. Well, that's the thing about Connor Brown is he. Quietly does a lot of things well. Yeah, he and and we said he's a lot like Clark MacArthur. He's not going to be an offensive juggernaut, but if you're looking for a consistent effort every night, you're going to get that out of him. Yeah, and it's very rare to see Connor Brown on the wrong side of the play, and it's kind of it's one of the things that uh, it's a little bit of a shame that his scoring touch never translated. Like it's definitely there, but it's not to the same degree. Yeah, and I think somebody on I'm trying to think right now. I think somebody on Twitter mentioned that too. He said that. Oh, fuck, I'm trying to think of the player they were um, comparing him to now. Oh, it's pissing me off. I, I can totally think of his name too. He was one of those guys that the Sen fans were always convinced he was going to be really good one day, but he just could never get it together. Uh, not Curtis Lazar. That's not the guy I'm thinking of. But uh, fuck. Um, so many off, so many it was, examples it was a more, of those players. It was, though, it, hey, I know, but it was a more recent player too. Uh, ah, fuck, it'll, it'll come to me. Uh, another guy I want to talk about: Tyler Ennis, one goal and six shots. You know, the thing about Tyler Ennis when I was watching these these last couple of weeks of games is that it's always games like this that makes it really hard for me to not want Ottawa to re-sign him in the offseason. Yeah, it's funny because we've talked a few times about Tyler Ennis being one of those guys who uh, doesn't see, isn't able to put it all together. But these last two seasons have been very good for Tyler Ennis, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if his aging curve is generous or not. 
Uh, one final comment I want to make before we go on and talk about the second game of the evening is the attendance. Because in, over the last over the last couple of years, I think a lot of people have have noted that the Senator games have not been sold out. Outside of, say, a few exceptions like an original six game or whatever, this was the second lowest attended game of the season. At, I think, 9,080 9, or something? No, 9,800. I think, I think that was a rough one because I think St. Louis earlier this season was the least attended. This was the second lowest of the year. Well, think about it. Yeah, like, like I said, but in fairness, would you really want to drive out to Canada to watch the Devils? No, in fairness, this, this turned out to be a better game than I expected. So, you know, you kind of got that. But, yeah, really, everything going against it, would you, would you really blame them? No, and then on top of that, there's also the fact that it's just been, with the state ownership, it's been bad. Like, attendance has been slipping for year since the cost per point comments started coming out. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I have too much more to say about this game other than, uh, actually, I really like Thomas Shabbat this game. Yeah, Shabbat actually looked pretty solid. But that's the one thing I, we could probably say about Shabbat coming into the next couple of games here is that overall he looked pretty good overall. Well, I think one thing is his ice time is looking better. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, but also he looks a lot more comfortable with the puck in the second half already. So I'm really happy about that. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Senators and Sabres. This is a 5-2 Senators victory. Senators were by Jean-Gabriel Peugeot, Tyler Ennis, Mike Riley, Mark Borvieski, and Nikita Zaitsev. Sabre goals were scored by Sam Reinhart and Jack Eichel. What, you couldn't get four, Jack? <laughs> you queer. Shots were 38-30 for Ottawa. A somewhat even game overall. Buffalo started the game disjointed and unable to get anything going in the offensive zone, which they figured out and were able to pot a couple. Ottawa looked solid offensively throughout the game, getting a number of scoring chances and shots. While their defense was not perfect, they did their job and they helped Ottawa secure the W. So, you know, I always talk about the goalies, and this game's going to be no exception. Craig Anderson, 28 saves, a .933 save percentage. Didn't have to put much work into that night, but looked pretty solid regardless. Yeah, it was... Honestly, this is a game where Buffalo just didn't really come to play. No, and and actually... uh, Sorry about saying, like, going back... Yeah, but even in the offensive zone, one thing I noticed for most of this game is that Buffalo looked... Like they had a lot of energy going into the offensive zone, but they either were passing it too much or they just they got the puck and they're like, "What do we do? Do we shoot it at him? Do we make a pass? Like what are we doing?" And the Sens defense just stopped them right then and there. Yeah, yeah, it was just really interesting to watch it. They just couldn't figure out what to do in the offensive zone. They had a lot of power play time to think about it, and I just remember like watching this game. It's like, yeah, this, this is a hockey game. Yeah. But actually, speaking about the power play, Tim, I'm really amazed you never mentioned Ottawa's power play in this because they looked fantastic scoring three goals in this one. Yeah. I think they went, what, three for five on the power play in this game? Something yeah, it like seemed like every time they got a man advantage, they scored. And correct me if I'm wrong, but all but one of Ottawa's goals came from the special teams. Uh, no, no. Uh, two of them did. I think uh, Borrow and Zaitsev were both empty netters. Boros was special teams, though. Oh, that's right. What game am I... No. No. Boros was penalty kill. 
Was it? I, I thought... Yeah, Empty Kill, Empty Net. Oh, okay, that's what I'm saying. Sorry, I was just thinking Empty Net in general, because I know Boro... That sucks for Boro, eh? The guy blocks two shots and then he scores. Yeah, well, what's more amazing is he got slew-footed before that. How did we not talk about Boro? Because this... Like, these two games were the legend of Boro Cop intensifies. Yeah, but you know the thing about the... Uh... Okaposo needing him from behind late in that game. A lot of there was not a lot of uh, people talking about it on Twitter, and I think somebody mentioned that, that that's a sneaky, dirty play. And I'm glad that the refs called that because you know that's a play. Overall, I don't think a lot of people would have caught that unless you had seen it on, you know, you caught it on camera or you were at the game and you just happened to notice that, right? Because that's a play where it was behind the play. And it was a sneaky, dirty one. So I'm totally fine with Uncle Poster getting called for that. Yeah, well, the big thing is, I think the reason it got called is Borovies, he went down. And I think the other thing about that is just Boro getting the stick in the eye of the game before that. And I think most of the chatter about that on Twitter and on TV, was it wasn't about Okposo, it was about Boro just coming back. I know, but you know what? You can't expect anything less out of Borovieski anymore. So there are a couple more players we should talk about. Anthony Duclair, nine shots in this game. Now, the one thing I liked about him in this game is that it was one of those games where he had a mix of really good chances, and there was even some shots he had in this where I just watched it think, come on, Duke, there was no chance that was going in. Yeah, but the good thing is, is he, sh he is shooting, and he's getting some good looks. Yeah, and I think, I think I'm sure this term is used everywhere else, too, but... As a wrestling fan, one of my favorite terms is throwing everything but the kitchen sink at them. This mm -hmm. was Anthony Duclair, 100% in this game. Is well, the thing is, he's getting good looks from good spots on the ice, too. So, And this is going to be the theme for the week. So, I'm not worried about Duclair, because he's playing the game right. He's on the right side of the shots most of the night, generating a crap load and looking entirely dangerous the whole time. Yeah. It'll come. It will. I'm not too worried. Let's talk about Brady to track one assist on eight shots. And the one thing I honestly didn't realize in this game is that up until I looked up his stats, I didn't realize he had eight shots in this game. Because honestly, it was one of those games where he was just in front of the net the whole time. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think you underestimate how many shots a guy who's just mucking it up in front of the net will get because you don't realize they've shot the puck until it's off their stick right right so uh it's kind of amazing exactly now one guy that i know that in the past you and i have both pumped his tires for good and for not so good reasons drake batherson two assists in this game this is one of the games where i watched it and I'm just like, you know what? I'm glad he got two assists because he was on the right side of the puck and he looked pretty confident out there. And that's one of the things I really noticed about Drake in some of these games is that now that he's been called up, every time he gets the puck, he doesn't have to panic. He's always looking around. He's always like, okay, I can pass it here. I can pass it here. I understand he's not going to shoot it. And so when I see him with the puck, I feel like I just breathe a sigh of relief thinking, okay, Drake's going to do something here to make a play happen. Yeah, and 
that pass was sneaky good. I know. So good. You know what? I think this is one of these games where... Because he, I actually thought he played very well against the Leafs, too. And if this was not the Third Line Plug is War episode, I would have called this episode Return of the Bath. Yeah, and I think it's going to be very hard to send Drake Batherson back down. No, absolutely. So a couple more players we need to talk about. Now, obviously, we talk about Mark Borbieski. Tyler Ennis and Mike Riley both had a goal and assist. Let's start it off with Ennis, because he had three shots. And like I said in the previous game, this is one of these games where... I watched him, and I really like him in this game. And, again, this is another one of those games where he would be a perfect third-line guy if we sign him for the right amount of money. Mm-hmm. But the hard thing is we also have a lot of guys coming in, so. Yeah, that's true. But even if you – you don't need to sign him long-term. Just sign him to maybe a two-year contract, and I'd be happy. Yeah, fair enough. Like, he's been playing so pretty well down the stretch, so I'd be happy – I'd be curious to see what Ottawa can get for him. Maybe a third? Maybe. I think if he could... Because he's on pace for 20 goals right now. So I think maybe he can do that. And yeah, let's see. 20 goals, 50 points. Yeah. I, I would honestly be happy. But I think a lot of people... I wonder what the reaction would be if he hits those numbers and we're just like, yeah, we don't need him. Or maybe, or, maybe yeah. they're just, or maybe they're just like, you know what? Maybe we got the one really good year out of Tyler Ennis and we cut him loose. The thing with asset management is the guy's 30. Yeah, it's true. But he's also a really good energy guy for the bottom six, though. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Mike Riley, as I said, a goal assist on two shots. One thing I've really noticed, I know you haven't exactly seen eye-to-eye with me on this, is that I actually thought Mike Riley has overall played pretty well for the Senators. And this was another game where I thought he looked really decent as well. Yeah, I thought... Like, Mike Riley, it's one thing I'm noticing about him is that he's really willing to just jump in the play. And the skating, I don't think, is as bad as it was made out to be. But uh, the fact that he hasn't been able to stick around and he's 26 does lead me to kind of side-eye him. If we get more of this Mike Riley, it's a good stopgap. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's one of the guys, I mean, I wouldn't... That's the, that's the thing about Mike Riley, and you're talking about asset management, is that I often wonder, if we cut him loose in the offseason, what the reaction of the fans would be. Because I think Mike Riley's a guy that you we've seen kind of enough from him that he says, okay, he's a decent enough defenseman. He's not a superstar or anything, but he's a decent, maybe third-pairing puck moon defenseman that could be really helpful when this team gets good. But you, you also got a fact of the defense what we already have coming up right because you know you have the lassie thompson's the burner dockers the yaros the willanans who actually is now in a full contact jersey for the first time this season so you have guys like that and then of course you have the potential of possibly the senators landing jamie drysdale in the draft so i don't know if mike riley would even be able to make the sense or what if he would be even getting lost in the shuffle in ottawa once those guys come up that's exactly it. So keep him as a stopgap and see if you can get flip something at him when he's no longer of use. Yeah. So the final note I want to make on this before we head into the third game, and ever since I've gotten NHL Game Center a number of years ago, one thing I always do whenever I watch the Sens and the Sabres play, I tend to not watch the TSN feed. Because for me, one of my all-time favorite hockey commentators is Sabres play-by-play man Rick Jenner. 
because he always had that really over-the-top voice. He kind of sounded like a European soccer announcer, almost, of how he would score, when people would score or a fight would happen. He was so enthusiastic. And so I got a chance to watch the Sabres feed in the second period, and honestly, I feel Rick should just hang it up now because, you know, listening to him, he sounds like later-day Bob Cole. He just sounds... Not maybe not so much to his energy because Bob Cole still had energy to him, but Rick just sounds so tired, and it's like, uh, it really broke my heart because I understand the guy's in his seventies, he's battled cancer, and I think the guy should just hang, hang it up because the first and the third periods I watched the TSN five feed with Chris Cuthbert, who by the way, I think he's currently the one of the best hockey commentators out there. I know a lot of people would say Jim Houston because he works the CBC feet games. But I think Chris doesn't get enough credit for how good of a broadcaster he really is. I think since TSN lost the main rights, the TSN guys don't get enough credit. No, and that's the one thing you've commented on is that, you know, the people who TSN has employed to with their hockey coverage, whether it be the Bob McKenzie's, the Ray Ferraro's, Jamie McLennan's, Chris Cuthbert's, and even to a lesser extent, Jeff O'Neill, I think that they have been really, really good. And I don't want to say they don't insult your intelligence, because I, I think Sportsnet, that's the one thing they kind of miss it, is that they try and get hosts that are very engaging to a TV audience. TSN has guys that are just naturally like that. And that's the one thing TSN has over Sportsnet in that category. Yeah. 100% agreed. So, Tim, do you, want, do you want to head on to the third game of the evening? Yeah, I think we've uh, pounded a boring game into the group. Oh, one thing is, uh, did you see the Buffalo fans' reaction to this game? No. On Twitter, it was wild. So uh, there's this thing going on on the Buffalo Twitter sphere called I'm Dwayne. Okay. Where basically, uh, I think it was uh, some guy whose Twitter handle name was Dwayne made like some small comments about the team not being so great this year and the team <laughs> deleted them. And uh, just the fan reaction on Twitter has been angry and sustained. Oh, actually, did you hear, I can't remember, it was a couple of days ago, uh, Saber owner Terry Bagula called into a radio station to actually try kind of the way that Melnick had with the Melnick bots on Twitter, where he would try and say nice things about it. And the guy's just like, is this Terry Bagula? No, it's not Terry Bagula. Come on. It's not me. I'm wearing a hat. And he's just like, uh, we, we, we can't see you, Terry. We're on the radio. Uh, it's hard to believe eh, that both of Buffalo's teams are owned by that guy. You know, it makes sense. Yeah, it's true. Caps versus Senators. This is a 5-3 Capitals victory. Caps goals are scored by Alex Ovechkin with two, TJ O.C., Evgeny Gutsnetsev, and Carl Haglin. Senators goals are scored by Chris Taneri. Hot Sambacho! And Artem Anisioff. Shots were 36-28 for Washington. TJ Oshie opens the scoring for Washington to make it 1-0, tipping in the Jarlon Carlson slap pass. Kuznetsov scores to make it 2-0 Washington, tapping at home 5-hole. Tyranny gets Ottawa on the board to make it 2-1 on a tic-tac-toe from Brown to DeMello. Ovechkin scores top shelf to make it 3-1 caps. Thomas Shabbat scores with a long shot to make it 3-2. Carl Hagen scores to make it 4-2. Artem Anidia scores to make it 4-3 on Duclair's rebound. 
Alex Ovechkin gets his second of the night to make it 5-3, which would be the final. So I had to condense watching this game again. Now, I wasn't going to watch this game that night, but when I was getting off work, my buddy texted me. He was over at the new athletic center because at work we had a basketball tournament going on. So he shot me a text message. He goes, Matt, come on over and watch the game. And so I walked over, and he and I were shooting the shit, watching the game, and I didn't get home till like 10 o'clock. And I was really tired that day. I was like, yeah, I don't feel like watching this game. And so that's why I can just watch it. So as we said off top of the yard, this was the Ovi-Watch game. Because as we mentioned off top of the yard, he passed Mark Messier with his two-goal performance. The one thing I have to note, Alex Ovechkin had 11 shots in this game. How does a player... How does a player... Well, maybe it's... I mean, with Alexander Ovechkin, not really that surprising. How does a guy get 11 shots? How bad does our defense have to be where a guy gets 11 shots on us in one game? Honestly, I think it was just he had, the Ovechkin line had an inspired game because they absolutely pulled apart the Pajot line, and Shabbat and Hainsey did not look that great either. Like, complete, utter domination. In some amount of play against them, uh, the Borbietsky DeMello line looked a bit better. But, yeah, Ovechkin was having a night. Oh, yes. This was definitely the LV game for sure. Now, give or take, now I was watching the condensed version. I couldn't really come up with many notes for this game, but I did come up with two. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about Marcus Hogberg. 32 saves, a .889 save percentage. Well, I, I do say he didn't have much of a chance on some of those goals, and his defense didn't help him out. He really didn't look that great in this game from what I saw. To be fair, you're, you're going to have a stinker every so often. I know, and I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm trying not to be hard on it because I watched those goals and I'm thinking, I'm not going to lie, there's not a lot of guys that could have stopped that, like Ovi's first shot where he went top shelf. How many fucking guys could stop that? Not many. No one. Yeah, and some of them were really, you couldn't do much on them. Like, as I said, you know, the Oshi was tipped in, Kuznetsov tapped at five hole, um... The Carl Hagelin one, I would kind of argue he should have had that one. But other than that, I don't think he could have really done much on that one in this game. Honestly, I agree. And uh, not going to really blame him for it. Yeah. Now, the only other note I have, of course, is the man known as Hot Sam Bacho, Thomas Shabbat, one goal, one assist on two shots. It's really good to see him finally score on his chances because over the last couple of weeks, coming into the second half of the season, the one thing I've noticed, and I'm sure I've, I've mentioned this already on the podcast, is that he looks really confident with the puck, but the one thing I've noticed, he kind of has that thing like Eric used to do. Eric would get the puck from one end, skate over the blue line, take a wrister right in front, and then just turn around. And I always noticed that that was a thing Carlson used to do all the time, was that he would get the puck, he would shoot it, as soon as the puck... As soon as he could see the puck not going anywhere, he turned back to go back into defensive stance. Okay. Yeah, and hopefully that's something that comes with time. Yeah, but you know what, though, is that I'm really on the fence whether or not that's a really smart defensive play because, think about it, if Shabbat tried to jump into the offensive zone to get the puck, one pass out of the zone, 
the fucking other team has a breakaway. Because there's nobody else probably back playing D. Yeah, that's 100% fair for the current Ottawa Senators. Yeah. But uh, I think it's also one of those things about learning when you can turn it on and when you can't. Yeah, and Shabbat, I think, is getting better at that because yeah. is that you usually he, you see him stand at the blue line and take a slapper trying to make something happen. But that's the one thing I noticed is that he's really starting to jump up in the play. And I'm not sure whether that's from a confidence issue or he feels that he has more trust and faith in his defense partners that he's able to do that. Because as you remember, in the first half, he was not really doing that. And I think when they paired him with Boro or Zaitsev or whoever they paired him with, you always saw it in his body language and how he played he didn't really have a lot of confidence in his defense partner to help him out. Although, to be 100% fair, Mark Borowiecki is tied for 20th among NHL defenders in goals. That is true. That is true. But, I mean, going back to last season when they paired him with DeMello, like, he was able to wheel and deal and do his thing because he knew that Dylan DeMello can play solid defense on the back end to help him out. <clears throat> yeah, so... We should put those guys together. I know. Maybe get the mellow off the third pairing. Like, come on, man. Come on. Come on, DJ. Yeah, be a dude. Yeah. So, Tim, it's time to move on to the fourth and final game. But usually with these games, there's something that I get you to do. And this is going to be the first time of this decade that I'm going to get you to do this, Tim. Is it a full hearty woo? Nope. Tim? If you want me to go on to the talk about this next game, give me a hell yeah! Hell yeah, brother! Alright, the fourth and final game of the evening, the Battle of Ontario, round two. Sens versus Leafs. This is a two-to-one Leafs overtime victory. Sens goals are scored by Mark Borowiecki. Leafs goals are scored by Jason Spezza and Mitch Marner in overtime. Shots were 36-25 for Toronto. A somewhat even game overall. Toronto started the game playing with energy, which they were able to sustain as they outplayed the Senators in the second period. Ottawa started off a bit slow, but was able to get their feet going as their good play came in waves throughout. However, they were, although they were the first one to get the first goal, it would not be enough as Toronto was able to pot the winner in overtime. So One thing I noticed is that I felt Ottawa came out really well to start the game and played containing Toronto pretty well for the first half, but you could tell the Senators had played the night before. Honestly, and you know, we were talking about the Battle of Alberta. This was really kind of a stinker in many, many ways. I think because in previous years, even if the game didn't go great for the Sens, it was entertaining. I don't feel the same about this game. It's a game. Yeah. It's a game that happened. It's a game that happened for sure. But I don't feel that the energy or the intensity wasn't there. It's not like the Battle of Alberta, and that's what the Eastern Conference is missing in the Battle of Ontario, is that intensity. Now I'm sure that you know all we need is Brady to Chuck to take a swipe at Austin Matthews or somebody to get that shit going. Yeah, the other thing that I don't think helps is. I think the idea to do that was there with Sa Scott Sabarin in the lineup, but did you even know Scott Sabarin was even in the lineup? Nope. He played three fucking minutes. 
honestly, I didn't even realize he was playing in that game, to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, like, if you're going to bring a dude just to punch people, let him punch people. Well, if that's, if that's the case, make Borbieski do it. Hey. Oh, right, right. Okay, we can't let one of our top 20 scores in the NHL do it. You're right. At Boro has been, like, sure, we can make fun of the scoring stats, but Boro has been quite solid, honestly, when it comes to actually playing defense late, lately. Yeah, he's one of those guys who's low-key having a pretty good year, and I, and nobody is really talking about it. Yeah, and it's it, it couldn't happen to a better guy. You know what could happen to couldn't have also happened to a better guy? The Matthews line being absolute dog shit. Oh my god, was it ever. But before we go into that, I think we need to talk about another really good guy. Craig Anderson, 34 saves, a .944 save percentage. You know, and it's that's sad, right? Because this season we've seen him put up some just god awful hockey games. But this was just another solid start for Craig Anderson. Yeah, and I'm very happy to see him continue to play because, honestly, he's one of those guys that I really want him to be able to play out his career. And he's definitely back into that conversation. Yeah, but you know what? Two good starts don't do that, right? And obviously, if he was to put a string of starts together where he's playing like this, you might do that. But I think because of how well Hogberg has been playing and how well Anders Nilsson has been playing, I'm really feeling like Anderson's kind of like the third man out in all of this, that maybe it is time to move on. For sure. But give him a few more, give him a few more reps and uh, maybe someone will be interested. True. Because I really do want to see Andy be able to play out the rest of his career. It is. I think that would be a very fitting way for Craig Anderson to, to uh, put out his career after nine seasons with the team. For sure, man. Yeah. Now, given that you were talking about the Matthews line being absolute dog shit, a line that I thought for the Senators looked really decent, the Ennis-White-Batherson line, especially Drake-Batherson. Batherson looked really good in this game. Like I said, in the second game against Buffalo. Yeah, and if Batherson... Like, I think a lot of people have been quite worried about uh, White's potential output. I think uh, Colin White has been uh, silently putting together much better starts as of late and uh just watching how tenacious he was on the plays with uh batherson this game was fantastic yeah and i think the one thing with colin white is that and i do kind of agree with you i do think he's put up some more solid starts but also because he's not really putting up a lot of points i think that's why a lot of people are still continuing to worry about him on the scene yeah and i think that's well, the thing is, his points have been hard to come by for the Senators. And this game especially was a goalie duel. Because I felt Hutchison kind of bailed out the Leafs as well. Mm hmm I totally agree. One guy I, I did like in this game, because he was in his office all night, the real American Brady Chuck with three shots. Yeah, that was actually pretty solid. So I guess the final note I got to make... And actually, Ian Mendez brought this up on Twitter because Ian posted a video of Mitch Marner stopping halfway through the play to tie his skates up. He says, you know, I've been watching hockey for years. I've never seen anybody ever stop to tie their skates up. And so I made a comment on Twitter, and I didn't realize I'd put this through the podcast Twitter, not my own. 
I says, well, you know, you know, if Mitch Marner had wax laces, the shit wouldn't happen. And I got like 11 likes on Twitter. Nice. And somebody cool. actually responded with, wax laces sucks. So I responded with the dude's gif of, yeah, well, you know, that's just like your opinion, man. Because I use wax laces on my skates. They're actually pretty good. I wouldn't know. But uh, what was I going to say? Uh, a lot of weird stuff's been happening this season. Like the guy who, uh, who was it that got the sk- the stick blade stuck in uh, the skate holder? I can't remember. The only thing I can think of was when the puck went right through it, and the, the oh, other team yeah, was scoring yeah, yeah. on it. That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, the one other note I have: Jason Spezza looked like peak Spez in this one with that fucking rocket of a shot in this game. Oh, Spezza had a hell of a game. Like, it was it was fantastic. Like, uh, you wouldn't know the dude's pushing 40. I know. He's looking so much better since Sheldon Keefe has come in with the Leafs. Because I think he's well, finally playing him to what Smugfuck Dube assigned him in the first place to do. Pretty much. I guess the other thing, though, is... Uh, I think all the Leafs have been playing better since, uh, why am I blanking off Sean that? Keith? Since Babcock left. That's true. That's true. That's because uh, Sheldon Keefe is not making those guys single out players anymore. Yeah, pretty much. So, Tim, do you have any more notes you want to make on this game before we head off into the close for another evening? No. Okay. Except, baby, can we get nice things like the Battle of Alberta? Maybe. You know, maybe... Well, we're playing the Leafs again in a couple of weeks, so maybe we can get that in Ottawa or Toronto. Yeah. We're playing. Well, first of all, guys, thank you so much for listening to the Third Line Plug Sensecast. I hope you've enjoyed it, because believe me, Tim and I love recording it for you. You can find us on the National Podcast Network. You can find our page on nationalpodcast.network, where you can find our links to iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter. At Third Line Plug is our Twitter handle. Tim is at M9HoneyBadger and at GreatWhiteGipsterGR8. W-A-T-E, Gipster. If you want to choose an email to talk about the games, top of the hour, or you want to talk about how the Battle of Ontario should be more like the Battle of Alberta, shoot us an email, guys at gmail.com. So, Tim, we don't have four games to talk about this coming week, but we have three games to talk about this week. We've got Tuesday, we are at home to play the Anaheim Ducks. Thursday, we are at home to play Nathan McKinnon and the Colorado Avalanche. And Saturday, we are traveling to Winnipeg to play the Winnipeg Jets. Should be an alright game. Should be a pretty good game. Or maybe three losses. Maybe. Tank Nation, go! Until next week, guys. I am your host, Taylor Gibson. And this has been Tim Jetsy. Go Sens, guys. Woo!